The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Radio Network. I am your host, Wendy Haught, and this month we are talking about cooking for Lent. Before I introduce my guest, I would like to share a few quotes from Jeff Smith, also known as the Frugal Gourmet. He had a cooking show by that name on PBS way back in the 80s, and I have one of his cookbooks. Much of what he said in the introduction resonates with me as a Catholic. He described a cuisine as a way of thinking as much as it is a way of cooking. Now that is definitely food for thought. Smith, who was taught to cook by his mother and uncle, said that his uncle was taught to cook with his memories and goes on to explain that we are dealing with more than one kind of hunger when we cook, the hunger for affection, for community, for feasting in order to remember, cannot be satisfied by a fast food French fry. I believe that cuisine as a way of thinking and feasting as a way of remembering are Catholic ideas, and they are true even when we are preparing meals during times of fast and abstinence. We can certainly get through Lent on Chick-fil-A waffle fries and Taco Bell pintos and cheese, but that is really missing the point, isn't it? That's why I am delighted to have on today's show two people who not only love cooking, they have fond memories of the cuisine they will talk about. Even if you were a latchkey kid and grew up eating frozen pizzas, you can start where you are and adapt these ideas and share them with your children and other family members. I hope that you will adopt my guest as your family and make their stories part of your story. I hope that the recipes they share might become part of your Lenten remembering and enrich your family's faith down through the generations. So without further ado, let me welcome my guest today, Justin Soder and Raquel Garcia de Alba. Justin is executive producer of the Restoration Radio Network and a bachelor cook extraordinaire with his own cooking channel on YouTube where he specializes in paleo dishes. A native Floridian who loves the South, he has recently moved to Ohio and is adapting to not having access to fresh seafood. Poor Justin. Justin is going to share his extensive experience with preparing fish and other seafood in simple ways for easy but deeply nourishing Lenten meals. Hello, Justin. Hey, Wendy. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to hear your voice. Raquel is calling in from Jalisco, Mexico, where she is visiting her grandmother, and will talk to us about traditional Mexican meals that are suitable for Lent. She studied at the La Cordon Bleu in Austin, Texas, in 2006, with a concentration in baking and patisserie. She is an all-around foodie and enjoys bread baking, making chocolate candies, and various cookies. Don't you want her to be your friend? Hi, Raquel. 
Hi, Wendy. <laughs> Welcome to the Catholic Home, Justin and Raquel. I've really been looking forward to having you on. Now, before I allow Justin to get carried away regaling us with tales of his many fishing adventures, we should refresh ourselves on the rules of fasting and abstinence during the Lenten season. We are attaching in the episode notes of this show an exhaustive explanation of the rules, courtesy of Bishop Sanborn in Most Holy Trinity Seminary. Justin, tell us about your introduction to cooking. When did it begin? How did you get into cooking seafood? Were you catching fish and cooking them over an open fire on the beach when you were a whippersnapper of eight years old? (laughs) Not quite, not quite, but... um... (laughs) I guess, well, to, to take the first question, I got into cooking uh, really at a young age, probably seven or eight years old. My father did a lot of cooking in the house, spent a lot of time in the kitchen just watching and tasting. And by the time I was probably eight, I would say eight, I was cooking all the time. I mean, I was helping my dad prepare, chop and slice and dice and things like that. So I um, sort of took it, took to cooking at a very young age and was able to just keep on going through my teen years and never really looked back. So I would say it began very young. How did I get into cooking seafood, you ask? Well, you know, growing up in Florida, I mean, seafood, seafood is sort of a birthright. Seafood is everywhere. I mean, seafood is so prevalent in any coastal region, and it's very inexpensive. So, you know, you, you learn to just go to the fish market and buy whatever's on sale that week, whatever was a whatever was a fresh catch, and you learn different ways to prepare it. Not to mention the fact you have friends and family who are going out into the bay and off to the Gulf and Atlantic side, and they're going every weekend during season, and they're catching all kinds of fish, and scuba divers are going what they call bug hunting, which is lobster hunting during lobster season. So it's it's just sort of saturated in seafood. So that's it's sort of by default that I got into cooking seafood. Wow, it sounds marvelous. I grew up in Florida, too. Um, of course, Justin knows this, and we certainly had fish all the time. In fact, I remember I, I would ask my parents, could we please not have king mackerel anymore? I'm sick of it. And now I think, oh, that was wonderful. Because <laughs> we used to go out fishing for that. But anyway, so you had a really early start. I had no idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was... And mom and dad like being able to take a day off from the kitchen and let me cook dinner. So <laughs> that mm-hmm. was, of course, like any other family, we all had family recipes that you know, were kind of passed down. And, you know, it wasn't just seafood. It was, you know, everything under the sun, spaghetti, meatloaf, beef stroganoff. Right. I mean, those those classic dishes and things like that. But since this is a Linton show, we were primarily focusing on the seafood aspect of it. That's why I mentioned it. But, yeah, right. it, it wasn't, it wasn't right. simply limited to seafood. That's great. I wasn't cooking at eight except for pancakes, I don't think. So, anyway, well, let's hear about Raquel. Tell us about your family's connection to Mexico and about your cooking background. Were you a novice when you decided to study at Le Cordon Bleu? And tell us about your introduction to cooking and what made you ultimately decide to pursue an education in it. Well, uh, my connection to Mexico is my father was born in Ciudad Guzman, Jalisco, Mexico, which is on the west coast of Mexico. We're about mm-hmm. maybe an hour, an hour and a half from the beach. So they're really like in a good spot here. We're in the mountains, so I have mountain climate, which is really awesome. And my cooking background, well, uh, similar to Justin's of just watching my mother cook and my grandmother and actually all my uncles on my dad's side 
all his brothers, they all cook and, and we've always grilled out on the weekends. So it's just food was very essential to my family and growing up. And it's always uh, an excuse to get together and share some family time. But um, if I, I was a novice when I decided to study, I guess you could say that um, I didn't know much other than scrambling up some eggs and pancakes and waffles and just the basic stuff. And I didn't start cooking until I was 12. All because my mother, when she scrambled my eggs, it was always like in the pan and not in the bowl. And it was like a little on the fried side. And I like mine fluffy. So I'm like, well, maybe I'll just start making my own scrambled eggs and just let her cook for everyone else. (laughs) So that's just when I started to be independent in the kitchen. And then I just started watching cookie shows like all the time and did a lot of cooking really in the high school. I remember one time we had like a... My senior year, we had, like all my friends had to get together at the local park, and I made a French toast casserole, and it was like a hit. And it's a lot of fun. I enjoy cooking for people, and it's enjoyable. But um, but what ultimately decided to uh, for me to pursue education in cooking is actually really silly. <laughs> when I was um, in high school, I was I'm a dreamer, so I was already daydreaming, and I know it's you know now that we shouldn't, you know, dream about the future, but I didn't know any better, but um, dreaming about like getting married and having a family and, you know, oh, I want to, you know, and hosting parties. So like, oh, I need to know how to cook, you know, I'd like, wouldn't it be funny just to go learn how to cook and make some awesome dishes and stuff like that and, and impress my future husband, you know, it's so silly, (laughs) but it's, kind of silly coming from like a teenager and like wow cooking school is actually really expensive and that's a pretty expensive hobby I have now but but that's why <laughs> I decided to go but no no not only that but I do enjoy baking and and it was a lot of fun I had a lot of fun there at the Le Cordon Bleu. Oh I bet it's I would love to to hear more about that sometime. Now that we've covered introductions and backgrounds let's start with Justin. Justin what recipes are you going to share with us? Well, I'm going to share two recipes that I think would be good for Lent. They're going to be simple recipes because I think the magic in seafood is that it's a less is more approach. The less you do with seafood, the better it tastes. So the recipes Mm. I'm going to share are a poached salmon with herb and caper vinaigrette and a kung pao shrimp. Those those two recipes, yeah, they're and they're they're very simple. They don't take a long time to make. And the flavor is outrageous. You'll never go buy cheap Chinese takeout Kung Pao shrimp again. Um, And, you know, these really, I mean, like once you begin to taste the difference between a a restaurant or a a fast food Kung Pao and then a homemade Kung Pao, you begin to scratch your head and say, why have I been buying this junk for so many years? But I'll start with the the poached salmon recipe. I'm just going to list the ingredients and... uh, I'll share it on the uh, the episode notes of this page here. It's two lemons, two tablespoons of chopped fresh parsley leaves, two tablespoons of chopped fresh tarragon leaves, two small shallots, which you're going to mince those up, about roughly three to four tablespoons, one half cup of dry white wine, one half cup of water, one skinless salmon filet. I would say about maybe an inch and a quarter, inch and a half thick at the widest part. Two tablespoons of capers. You want to rinse those and chop them up a little bit to release some of the juice inside the capers. 
one tablespoon of honey, and two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil and salt and ground black pepper to taste. Just a quick note about the salmon. Make sure that you have the, uh, the white membrane taken off the salmon, and you can, you can even fillet and crosswise that. You can score it or you can cut it into four equal pieces, whatever you want to do, however you want to prepare it. The instructions are pretty simple. You just want to take your lemon and you want to cut it up into eight equal slices. You want to place the salmon in the skillet, skin side down, put the pan on high heat and bring the liquid to a simmer. You're going to put your dry white wine and your water in the pan. Once you bring the liquid to the high heat, just go ahead and reduce it down to low and cook and cover until what you're looking for at the thickest part of the salmon is the size to be a bit opaque and a little bit, a little bit white. If you want to use an instant read thermometer, you can. It, it, you want to get about 125 degrees. I know that's not that's not Department of Agriculture approved or the, the USDA approved, but that's that's where you're going to get your best taste. It's going to take about 11, well, 10, 15 minutes. Okay, on that heat. Take take the pan off the heat and then transfer your salmon and the lemon slices to a paper towel lined plate. I also forgot to mention that you want to take the lemon and you want to put it in the pan with the water and the dry white wine. Okay. Sorry. I should have put that in the beginning. Once you take the salmon out and the lemon wedges out, you want to return your pan to high heat and you want to simmer that cooking liquid down and you want to reduce it till it feels about, I don't know, two tablespoons in there, about, about 45 minutes. Then what you want to do is you want to combine your shallots, your herbs, your honey, your oil, and your capers into a medium bowl and then take and strain your reduced cooking liquid through a fine mesh strainer in the bowl with the herb caper mixture, okay? And, and you want to press down all the solids that are on the strainer to get as much liquid out as possible, okay? At that point, you're just about finished. Whisk and combine, get it nice and mixed up using a whisk. If you don't have a whisk, use a fork. And then mm -hmm. go ahead and season your salmon with salt and pepper. And using, that, using a spatula probably because the fillets of salmon are going to be very tender. You want to carefully lift and tilt the salmon fillets, and then you want to get the lemon slices off. And so then, then just take, place your salmon on a plate, spoon the vinaigrette over the top, serve it with steamed vegetables, and you have a very nice salmon with herb and caper vinaigrette dressing on top of it. Really good. Takes you about, start to finish, about 20 minutes. Now, the Kung Pao shrimp, like most oriental cooking, all your work is in the prep. The actual cooking time, there's no time at all. I mean, you could have that finished in probably about 12 minutes. So for the ingredients of the Kung Pao shrimp, what you want is one pound of extra large shrimp, 21, 25 count per pound, peeled and deveined. If you go to the store, you can find it. Sometimes it's just called 21, 25 shrimp. Sometimes it's called medium shrimp at 21, 25. I don't know why they call them medium, but this recipe calls for extra large shrimp. Where I come from, extra-large shrimp is like 12 to 14 shrimp per pound. Those are also called prawns, but we won't get into that. One okay. tablespoon of dry sherry or rice wine. You want to use two teaspoons of soy sauce. If you don't want to use soy sauce, use coconut aminos. You want to use three medium cloves of garlic, pressed, preferably pressed. If you don't have a garlic press, just mince it very, very well on a cutting board. You want to get a lot of that garlic oil out of the cloves. Mm -hmm. Get yourself a piece of fresh ginger, maybe about a thumb-sized piece. It's very cheap. You can find it at any grocery store. You want to use an oil of some kind. Typically, Oriental is going to use peanut oil or vegetable oil. If you have to choose between the two, I choose peanut, just my opinion. You want to use about a half a cup of roasted unsalted peanuts, 
six to eight, depending on how much heat you want in this, uh, dry red chili. If you can't find the whole dried chilies in like the, the there's um there's an ethnic cooking aisle that usually serves bags of dried or sells bags of dried chilies, you can just use crushed red pepper if that's all you have. If all you have is the crushed red pepper, use about a teaspoon of that. You want to use okay. three. Now the recipe will call for a chicken broth. Since this is a Lent, we're not doing that. Just use vegetable broth, three quarters of a cup. If it's outside of Lent or it's a Sunday, you want to use a chicken broth, use the chicken broth. That's the more authentic taste. Two teaspoons of plain rice vinegar. If you can find black rice vinegar, that's really going to make the flavor pop. Two teaspoons of toasted sesame oil. You want to use a tablespoon of oyster sauce, a tablespoon of hoisin sauce, one and a half teaspoons of either cornstarch or arrowroot powder, whichever one you want to use. I'm giving you the option if you don't want to use the cornstarch. One medium mm-hmm. red bell pepper, and you want to cut that into about a half inch dices, and three medium scallions. That's the entire ingredient list. Very simple. You want to uh, toss the shrimp after they're peeled and deveined into a medium mixing bowl with a sherry and the soy sauce, and you want to marinate those for about 10 minutes. While those are marinating, you want to mix the garlic and the ginger and a tablespoon of oil in a small bowl. Set that aside. Combine your peanuts and your chilies into a small bowl and set those aside. And you want to mix your broth, your vinegar, your sesame oil, your oyster sauce, your hoisin sauce, and the cornstarch in a small bowl, measuring cup, you know, whatever you have, and set it aside. That's all the prep. At this point, heat, heat the oil up in about a 12-inch skillet, preferably stainless steel. If you have a wok, use the wok. You want to heat the oil until it's just beginning to smoke. At that point, toss in your shrimp, cook it 30 to 40 seconds. If you've ever cooked with shrimp, you know that you can turn them into tire rubber if you cook them too long. And too long can be as much as like 75 to 80 seconds. Okay, So right. 30 to 40 seconds. Once you get that going, you want to add the chilies and the peanuts. Stir those into the shrimp. Continue cooking those about another 30, 30, 40 seconds or so. Then take out the shrimp from the skillet and the peanuts and the chilies and put them in a bowl. Let them cool down. At that point, put the skillet back on the burner maybe about another 30 seconds, let it, let it heat back up. You want to add the remaining teaspoon of the oil, swirl it to coat your pan, then add your bell pepper, and you want to saute that up. You want to clear your center of your pan up, make a little, a little blank space. You want to add in your garlic and your ginger mixture and mash it really into the pan with the spoon that you're cooking with to really release the rest of those oils, and you'll start getting the fragrance. In fact, sometimes with the peppers and everything, it can, it can kind of take your breath. Stir your broth in. At that point, and then you want to add in your reserved shrimp, your peanuts, your chilies. Cook it, stir it, and scrape up all the brown bits on the bottom of the pan. The sauce will thicken up. It'll become a bit, a bit syrupy, but it won't be gloppy. So it'll just, it'll just be syrupy. That's about 45 seconds. Garnish with your scallions in the pan. Stir it up. Transfer it to your plate. And if you want to serve it over like a jasmine or a basmati rice or just a regular white rice, you can do that. If you want to forego the rice, you can do that as well. That's the mm-hmm. simple tongue power recipe, and I'll put the recipe online with the uh, with the salmon. I can't wait to try both of them. They sound yeah, really good. Yeah, they're really good, and they're so and they're so simple. I mean, I know it sounded like a mouthful whenever I'm trying to rattle it off in a two or three minute segment, but it's really simple, and you'll be amazed at at the flavor that's in both of those both of those recipes. Okay, so what basic prep and cooking techniques do our listeners need to master for the recipes you're, you just discussed? Well, there's really not much to master. I mean, it's just in terms of the Kung Pao shrimp, it's going to be mastering really just being able to prep some veggies 
and prep some shrimp and stir over high heat. That's the miracle of stir fry really is that there's really not much technique to it. You just get some heat on a pan and, uh, you know, cook everything up. When it comes to the, the salmon, uh, really the only technique would be poaching. And poaching is very, is very simple. You really can't mess it up. I mean, I guess you could cook it a little too long, but even still, you're going to retain the flavor. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about is understanding the types of fish and what their qualities and detriments are. Most people in the United States who do not live in coastal regions are in love with tilapia. I can't stand tilapia. I hate it. I think it's the worst tasting fish that there is, and it doesn't hold up well under heat. It needs a lot of seasoning. It needs a lot of help. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. uh, you go to any restaurant and people think they're getting seafood if they get broiled tilapia with broccoli and things like that. And it's like, it's just, it's just a very bland fish. If you put heat to it, it flakes apart. So I tend to stay away from that. But if that's all that you have, you just have to learn certain techniques with certain types of fish. Tilapia takes well to broiling and baking. It takes very poorly to blackening, grilling, frying, anything like that, because it's just such a weak fish. The texture of the meat is just not suited to high heat. Whereas if you talk right. about something like a, a salmon, a grouper, flounder, anything of that nature, you're going to get a much meatier fish that can withstand different types of cooking. So understand the fish you're working with, do a little bit of research on how that particular species of fish should be prepared. Also understand the relationship between heat and flavor retention in seafood. Typically, the lower the heat, the more flavor you're going to retain in the fish. Okay, most people think blackening and frying is the way to go. Try some poached salmon and see if that flavor doesn't jump out at you. It's much different. Because much like steaming vegetables retains the flavors and the nutrients, steaming or cooking fish over low heat really helps maintain the flavor of the fish. So I would say that. I would also tell you to begin to understand the different preparation techniques of seafood. This will help spread your lint out with with a variety of different ways to prepare seafood. People think, okay, fish and chips. I fry my fish or I go buy Gorton's fish sticks and that's seafood. Well, look. (laughs) There's a myriad of ways to prepare. Like I've said, I mean, I've named them poaching, broiling, baking, frying, blackening, grilling, smoking. There's many different ways to do it that are going to yield you a much better seafood experience than just your traditional deep fry. So understand the different techniques. And there's a ton of YouTube videos. There's a ton of material on Food Network. There's a ton of material and just, just Google the stuff. And I mean, you, you'll have no shortage of recipes. And the last thing I would say is this, understand that when it comes to fish and shrimp, and, and we're primarily focusing on fish and shrimp, because those are the two easiest things for pretty much anyone to find. If you're going to a grocery store, even a grocery store abroad, I would say you can probably find some kind of basic fish and some kind of shrimp. Understand that less is more when it comes to cooking fish and shrimp. When you have a nice piece of salmon, you don't need a lot of seasoning on it. You don't need a lot of toppings. A simple vinaigrette will do. A simple chives and lemon with some butter and some salt is fine. Just a little bit of Mm -hmm. lemon is fine. Okay, you don't really need to go out there and try to overpower it with Old Bay seasoning and stuff like that. I would say save that for the tilapia. Okay, because that needs a lot of help. <laughs> but if you get yourself, but if you get yourself a good piece of salmon, or a good piece of kingfish, or you know where you could smoke kingfish, or mullet, or mackerel, flounder, grouper, those sort of things, or those those sort of species, 
they're going to lend themselves well to very little seasoning and have packed flavor. Okay, that's good advice. One thing about the tilapia, I never find any that isn't farm-raised. Is it available that it, that's not farm-raised? Well, you raise a good you point. And that was one thing I was going to bring up was the difference in farm-raised and wild-caught. It's very difficult to find tilapia that's not farm-raised. Almost all of it is commercially farmed. If you go to your big box stores, like a Costco, a Sam's, a Meyer, Kroger, those those type places up in Canada, it, I don't know what the equivalent in Canada would be. Anyway, you can these days you can find for a very fair price wild caught salmon. I was just at Sam's Club about three weeks ago, and they had wild caught sockeye salmon, and it was like fourteen dollars for two pounds. Which was, which is really a good deal. I mean, seven dollars a pound. That's that's cheaper than going to you know, the fish market, and it was sourced in Alaska, and you can get it there. Mm-hmm. The wild caught will definitely have a different quality texture to the meat, and it will certainly have a much better flavor when in the finished dish. So the answer to your question is no. I know of no place that you can buy wild caught tilapia. If you find it, hey, good for you. But I don't know of any place that you can find it around here. Yes, well, I avoid it because everything I've read about farm-raised fish is they're loaded with antibiotics and I don't know what else. And so I I just don't buy anything that's farm-raised. And also, I've noticed when I'm shopping that a lot of seafood says that it's from somewhere in maybe China or Korea. Thailand, (laughs) Vietnam. Yeah, that's right. Vietnam. That's where a lot of that's where a lot of it comes from. Absolutely. And I don't feel good about that. So I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. Do you avoid that as well? Or am I being too picky? Oh, no. I mean, I certainly do. I mean, of course, it was much easier to avoid that when I was in Florida. But um, that's what FedEx is for. <laughs> FedEx and family members. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> no, it, it, it's no, it's certainly a concern. You know, look, that's what you can afford. That's fine. You know, but if you have the option spend just a little bit more and get the better quality fish. It's going to be, it's going to be better for you and it's going to taste better. And it's not coming thousands and thousands of miles away, probably caught six to eight months ago, flash frozen, Mm. stuck in a box. For example, um, I know crab legs around here are almost all of them are from Thailand or from China. Mm. If you look at their pack to date, it'd say something like, August the 7th, 2014, and they've been flash frozen because they get a long shelf life that way and they can they can stay frozen for a very long period of time. They can sell it up to a year later, and I stay away from that. And like I said, the people who don't have access to fresh seafood, and I'm, I'm in that category as well, if you really want fresh seafood and you don't really have a limit on what you want to spend, you just want to get a really nice cut of fish, Whole Foods always has it. Uh, Whole Foods always has fresh seafood. Fresh Market has fresh seafood. Most cities in the United States have a seafood market somewhere, okay? And they may not have the selection that you're going to get in in a coastal area, but they certainly have a Mm -hmm. selection of fish and shrimp and oysters and things like that 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 you can get. So I I would say make a visit. Try that to begin with. Try going to your local seafood market if you have one and see what they have on offer. It may not be great. It may not be a Pike's Market out there in Seattle, but it's definitely going to be more than what your your generic grocery store is going to carry. Okay. Well, that sounds good. I was going to ask you about any special cookware or utensils, but it didn't sound like 
from your description of the of cooking the recipes that anything was required even with the one the kung pao shrimp you said you could use a wok or not so was there anything yeah, I mean, there you that you don't have to use a wok not really i mean you could use cast iron you could use uh, that the the recipe for kung pao i did in the 12 inch stainless steel skillet so mm-hmm. that and a, a wooden spoon some bowls right. some forks maybe a whisk so there's not not much to it that I mean, and i specifically tailored the recipe for this episode that it you know, you didn't have to go out and buy yourself some extravagant piece of cookware to actually make the meal. It's, it's very simple. Okay. I know a lot of people are worried about mercury in fish, so I'm going to be posting a link in the show notes to a helpful article about that. Was there anything else that we needed to cover, Justin? I'm scanning over my list. <laughs> no, I think I think that's going to be it, you know, for the recipe portion. The little seafood lesson there. So I'm interested to hear what Raquel has to say. Okay, great. We would like to remind you that you are listening to The Catholic Home on the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. However, permission can usually be easily obtained by writing mail at truerestoration.org. I am your host, Wendy Haught, and my guests today are Justin Soder and Raquel Garcia de Alba. Today, we've been discussing seafood preparation and cooking for Lent with Justin Soder. Now we're ready to cross the Gulf and visit beautiful Mexico, where we find my friend Raquel. Hello again, Raquel. Hi, Wendy. So today, you're going to talk to us about Lenten food ideas from the Mexican tradition, right? That's right. What basic prep and cooking techniques do our listeners need to master for the recipes you're going to discuss? These um, two recipes, the first two recipes are fairly, very easy. So just the basic cooking skills, um, your basic knife skills. Just you're going to chop up some vegetables and basically that's it. Okay. I don't think I even asked you which two recipes you're doing. Oh. Maybe you're doing more than two. <laughs> I've forgotten now. Well, uh, well, the first two are, are super simple. It's um, Well, the first is not really Mexican, but it's black beans and rice. It actually came from my aunt who lived in the um, the Dominican Republic uh, right after she graduated from university for a while. And she brought that recipe back with her and we used it for Lent just because it was so simple and so easy. And it's something different than your regular, you know, cheese pizza or whatever, your basic tuna casserole or something, you know, but your Friday Mm -hmm. meals during Lent. But, um, and then also the other is, Tostadas and sillas, which is a tostada without meat. The tostadas you can actually find in the bread aisle at your regular supermarket. It's so easy to find Mexican food items now in your regular supermarket. So if not, then you could just go to like your Mexican, your your little Mexican grocery store or meat market and they'll definitely have them there. Right. I know there's, it's really gotten popular, um, Mexican food. It's really gotten popular, or at least Tex-Mex. I don't know if we're really eating Mexican food in the States. <laughs> yeah, yes, we do. It's have... actually more popular than authentic Mexican food. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's true. So are there any specialty tools or ingredients we will need? And um, where would we find for... Yes. You will need, if you don't have a bean smasher, that's what I call it. I don't know if there's actually a professional name for it, but... You will need that because yeah, <laughs> you're going to re- uh, be refrying some beans. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, well, I guess we could start with the uh, black beans and rice, which is super easy. Just boil some rice to your liking um, and according to your family size. And then your black beans canned or regular, boil them yourself. Basically, you just 
when the rice is cooked and you scoop some rice in your bowl, top it with either cooked black beans. And then um, while those two items are cooking, you're going to be chopping up some shredded lettuce, tomatoes, onions, and your cheese of preference. Normally we just use cheddar because we always have it in the house. And then you just top it all on top of your black beans and rice. And there you go. Easy meal for the whole family. And then sounds like it'd be very inexpensive too. Yes, exactly. It's light on your wallet, that's for sure. Now you were saying then, you were saying or um you could use cheddar or whatever you normally have in the house, but in Mexico they don't use cheddar so much, right? Right, that's right. And then normally in Mexico black beans is not so very popular. Unless you're like on the east coast, closer to the cur- to the Caribbean. Like I say, this this recipe is actually from the Dominican Republic, and we just adopted it into our Lenten season um, Friday meals. Yeah, so that sounds like a really good recipe, something different to have, refreshing, not too heavy. Okay, and so then the next thing you want to talk about, are you going to do the, the chilies rellenos? Oh, rellenos, chiles rellenos. They're, um, that just means filled chilies, and um, you actually can buy the green chilies at the store, at your supermarket. And all you do is you're actually going to have to, on if you have a gas stove or on your gas grill, you're going to have to burn the skin off of the chilies till they're like completely black. And then while you are burning the chilies, when one of them is done, you stick it into like uh, in between a hot, like in a, in a towel. So that it kind of mm-hmm. sweats. So it's easy to peel the skin off. And then once all that is done, you just fill them with cheese. Normally it's, you can use um, panela, which is a Mexican cheese, and it melts. It's the, it's the easy melt. It's the easy mm-hmm. melting cheese. And um, you can you can put some green peas or maybe um, pieces of corn in there as well. It, normally, it's just regular cheese, but it's super easy. Interesting. You put loose kernels of corn inside? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, never heard of that. <laughs> And then the tostadas sencillas, that's actually another really easy meal as well. You can buy the tostadas at your uh, local supermarket in the bread aisle. And you're, you just um, cover the tostada with, with refried beans. And then you top it with shredded lettuce, chopped tomatoes, chopped onions, uh, chopped cilantro, and cheese. Yeah. So how is, what is the sencilla part of the tostadas? Oh, sencilla just means like smooth. Um, so it's it's just a way of saying without meat because normally tostadas come with shredded pork or shredded chicken. Um, oh, but if you don't you want actually, any meat on it, you have to say tostada sencilla. Sencilla. You had actually explained that at the beginning, and then I forgot about it. I remember mm-hmm. that now. Okay. So are you going to talk about the bread pudding? Yes. This is actually the longer recipe because it's um. Quite a process. This, this is the part I was real excited about. So tell us all about this one. Well, capriotada is actually like a sweet and savory bread pudding, um, and it's traditionally served on Good Friday. It's very, um, it's a very old recipe. It's just, and it has so many variations to it. Everybody has their own recipe, so you'll mm. you'll never get the same the same like bread pudding. Some some capriotadas will have like pecans and dried fruit, and others will have like chopped onions and peanuts. So I'm going to share the one that my maternal grandmother always made during lunch, which has the onions in it. And as a kid, I was like, 
onions and bread pudding <laughs> doesn't really go good. Doesn't sound good, but as I grew older, I became to I to like it. Mm-hmm. Wow, it does sound really interesting. I've never heard about anything like that. I mean, it's got onions and what else? I'm gonna list the ingredients of what you'll need. Um, this recipe serves eight, and you're going to need four bolillo rolls, which you can find at your local supermarket. Or you can substitute for a like a large French baguette, and you're going to need oh, and then also the bread is better stale because it is a bread pudding, so like a day or two is best. You're going to need three to four piloncillos, which is the Mexican cane sugar, or you can substitute it for dark brown sugar. And if you're using the piloncillo, the piloncillos, you're going to have to crush them, and you're going to need about two cups. You're going to need four cups of water, a four-inch stick of cinnamon and one whole clove. You're going to need a half a cup of melted butter divided, two cups of shredded cheese, and you can either use um, cotilla, Monterey Jack, Longhorn Cheddar, Colby or Queso Añejo, or you can use panela. You're going to need one cup of raisins, a cup of peanuts, or if you have a peanut allergy, you can substitute the peanuts for almonds or walnuts or pecans. Um, They're just for like, if you do want to add a fresh fruit, you're going to need three cooking apples, peeled, cored, and sliced, or you can use banana. And I, I think three would be enough and just slice them up. But you don't have to add the fruit if you don't want to. My grandma doesn't add fruit. And then you're going oh. to you're going to need half of a large onion and chop very finely. And you want to caramelize that onion too. And then you're going to preheat the oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. And you're going to need a greased. 9 by 13 baking dish um, with deep sides if possible. So this is actually fairly easy. You're just going to slice the bread into chunks. You're going to melt the butter and you're going to brush both sides of the bread with the melted butter. And you're going to take a cast iron skillet and you're going to lightly fry the bread on each side. And then you're just going to set that aside because then you're going to make the syrup, which is the be in a medium saucepan, you're going to mix the water, the crushed piloncillo, the cinnamon, and the clove, and you're going to bring that to a boil, and then you're going to simmer it for five to ten minutes so until it's slightly thickened into a syrup. You're going to pour that. Once it's cooled, you're going to pour it into a strainer, or slightly cooled. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to pour it into a strainer. That way, you can get the cinnamon and the clove out, and then keep the syrup slightly warm while you're layering the bread and the peanuts and the raisins and the caramelized onion and the cheese. You're just going to layer that all on the bread to make a bread pudding. And then you're going to um, drizzle the syrup all over the bread so it's nice and soaked. And then you're going to pop that into the oven for 30 minutes with um, foil on top until the top layer of the cheese is bubbling and browned and nice and warm and melty. And then you're going to want to serve it warm. You can't eat it cold the next day. It tastes really good. but uh, (laughs) Serving it hot is best. And what would you serve that with? I mean, uh, you, I mean you, you would, you would itself. Okay, so even with the onions and all that, you're still it's still going to be considered a dessert. Right, because when you caramelize the onions, the onions become sweet. And it's probably better okay. to use like a sweet onion. Okay. Well, yeah, I was I was trying to think what is this comparable to and I started thinking about like dressing. You know, like we like American dressing or stuffing or whatever. It kind of reminded me of that with the nuts and raisins and and onions. But I guess I'll just have to make it and see because I can't yes. imagine really <laughs> <laughs> what it's like. I'll have you come to my house and make it for me. That would be that would be even 
better. Sounds like a plan. But, yes. Well, um, after listening to Justin and Raquel, I'm actually looking forward to Lent. Wonderful ideas, Justin and Raquel. Before we wrap up the show, I'd like to hear from the two of you what advice you would give to the new cook just starting out. Justin? Well, I would say don't be afraid to mess up. If you're just beginning in the kitchen, just start finding recipes and experimenting. And the worst that's going to happen is you're going to burn something and you'll you'll know <laughs> next time not to do that. I mean, it's it's uh, it's amazing to me the people that are afraid to get in the kitchen and trying to make a dish because, well, I don't, know, I don't know how to cook. Yeah, well, the longest journey starts with the first step. You know, you have to get out there and you have to try it. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say, well, you know, the things that can age you, go ahead. I was going to say, if you want to burn, if you're bad at, if, if you often burn things, then start out with Raquel's uh, chili recipe where you have to burn them. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah. See, we have all the bases covered. Um, I would say to go online and check out the numerous resources. YouTube is just overflowing with great cooking instructional videos and recipes from all over the world. It's one of the neat things about YouTube is that you have people that are just the average home cook that are putting up videos on YouTube. If you're looking for a good series, I'd recommend the Gordon Ramsay Ultimate Cookery series. Those of you who might know who Gordon Ramsay is, you know, he has a little salty language from time to time. But this series is totally clean. Uh, it's a great 24-video series which breaks down basic recipes and basic cooking techniques and basic cookware. It's a great starting point. And that's what, that's what the, the show was designed around, was taking people that really didn't know how to cook and turn them into people who can make great meals and do it on a budget and mm-hmm. really, you know, very little room for error there. The next thing I would say is if you're just starting off is to buy specific equipment. Now, Raquel might disagree with me on this, and I'm happy to hear her, you know, her disagreement. But I, I would say buy the best that you can afford. Good kitchen equipment really lasts a long time and you get what you pay for. If you buy the garbage stuff, you're going to find yourself putting it in the garbage can pretty fast. So. Mm-hmm. Whatever your price point is, if you can afford to get the better brand and do some research, you'll find yourself buying that, that particular piece of cookware one time in your life and you're done with it. You can check out places like America's Test Kitchen and you get really good equipment reviews. I would also say do not buy block sets of knives and cutlery <laughs> and do not buy cookware sets. I learned this the hard way. Uh, buy individual pieces and make sure you incorporate uh, cast iron to begin with. You're not going to find anything cheaper than cast iron, and, and it conducts heat better than anything that I know. You can find them everywhere, and they last absolutely forever. I mean, my grandmother, you know, she still has a cast iron skillet she bought in like 1950, and it still works just as well as the day she bought it. I would also say that if you're going to buy nonstick, and, and nonstick cookware is very controversial, but if you're going to do it, absolutely absolutely do not buy cheap nonstick at a department store or a big box. There are very few brands which are what we would call safe nonstick. And unfortunately, they're going to set you back when you go to purchase them. I mean, if you buy a set of professional all-clad nonsticks, they're going to run you upwards of $800. Uh, just a 12-inch skillet alone will cost you 160 on Amazon. It's, you know, oh and nonstick cookware is, it, yeah, nonstick cookware, and I think you'll agree with me, Wendy, is not essential in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> when I bought my set of all-clad years ago, I got them at a Christmas special reduced price, and they were still pricey, but not even close to what they are today. And 
Unfortunately, they spend about 98% of their time in my cabinet while the cast irons and I have an enamel over cast iron Dutch oven. They get used all the time. And and it's a fraction of the cost. I mean, like a 16th of the cost. So if I had to do over again, I wouldn't buy nonsticks. And so instead of investing in those, after your cast irons, I would recommend people to go buy some good branding stainless steel uh, at the right gauge thickness. And if you've got the money, copper bottom stainless. My last two are to learn some basic knife skills and don't be afraid of cutting yourself. You're going to nip yourself <laughs> from time to time. It's going to happen. It just, you know, that's the name of the game. I mean, you, you, know, you, you have a sharp knife in your hand and you're running it through you know, meat and vegetables, which are usually somewhat wet and moist, and you're going to cut yourself now and again. But don't let that stop you. And lastly, I would say begin building your kitchen with the right tools for the job. Okay. Don't go after the gimmicky gadgetry that empties your wallet and gets used about 2% of the time. If you're just starting off, search eBay and search Craigslist for all of this stuff. Do not pay retail for any of it. Amazon.com is your friend, but Craigslist and eBay, you can get amazing, amazing deals on really quality cookware for just pennies on the dollar compared to what you're going to spend in the store. So if you don't mind doing a little bit of research, you don't mind doing a little bit of bidding on eBay, you don't mind meeting someone at a public place and, you know, on Craigslist and getting your cookware, your bakeware, stuff like that, you can really find some great deals and you can get equipped for, uh, like I said, pennies on the dollar. So those are my recommendations. Well, that that was quite extensive and wonderful in every way. (laughs) Thanks, Justin. I have some of the um, enamel, while I'm saying it backwards, I have some of the cast iron with the enamel coating and I really enjoy it. I have an oval Dutch oven and then just a round deep dish covered skillet that will go in the oven as well. And I use those all the time. They're fabulous. I wish I had gotten them years ago. And I got mine at at an outlet store for the the brand. I forget how, I'm not sure how you, here I go again with my not being able to pronounce things, but the Le Creuset, is that how you say it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And those are top of the line. The you know, licorices are, are just amazing. I bought a Tramontina at Sam's Club, believe it or not, paid fifty dollars for it. Uh-huh. It's not gonna be anywhere near as anywhere near as nice as one you have, but it gets the job done and it I've had it for probably five years now and it looks just as good as the day that I bought it. So I mean it's right. definitely that's the way to go is getting yourself some good cast iron and some enamel over cast iron. I actually bought a piece of it at large chain grocery store in Texas called H-E-B. And they were selling some enamel coated cast iron. And I thought, I'm going to try this and see, because it is so much cheaper than what I paid for the for the brand name stuff. And so far it's worked out very well, but I haven't used it quite as much as my other pieces. So we'll see how it lasts. It's definitely worth a try because it is significantly less money. So if you're just starting out and you're not sure if you're going to use that, enjoy using it, you might want to get the one of the less expensive ones. Let me go to Raquel and see what advice she has for us. I wouldn't be able to add anything to anything that Justin had just said. I completely agree with everything he said about getting the best cookware, the best utensils, the best knives that you can afford it has out there. I personally use cast iron as much as I can. And being here in Mexico, watching my grandmother cook, and she's 86 years old, she prefers the ceramic pottery cookware that she's had since she was a young bride of 
I'd have to say, I believe she was 16. And all the nonstick cookware that my father and my uncles have bought her are all hanging up on the wall collecting dust. (laughs) (laughs) She just prefers, she prefers the, the, the pottery, the ceramic cookware. And I think it, it brings us back to like a, a point of humility between the earth and our food. It, I don't know. There's something poetic about that, but. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I know what you're talking about. I don't think that kind of cookware is readily available outside of, or at least it's not available in a, in the United States. Right. I, I haven't seen anything. I like don't that. think so. I haven't seen that type of like pottery cookware back in the <laughs> state. Wow. I apologize I would like- if you hear the dog again. <laughs> Mexico okay. is not a very quiet country, and the windows are single pane, so you can hear everything that goes on outside. Yes, Raquel was telling me earlier about all the different vendors who are coming down the road and and calling out their their wares and so forth. And the what was it? Did you say also the propane salesman? Oh yes. At my grandma's house, she has a cocker spaniel, and every time the propane gas tank truck comes by calling out for people, hey, you need some gas, you know, and obviously it's in Spanish, but he starts howling like the moon's out, and every time that truck comes by, because he comes by around like maybe three times in the day, but it, the life oh around God. here is so different. <laughs> it sure is, but there's lots of it that I that I appreciate, that's for sure. So let me see if I can wrap up all of this. Today, we covered basic ideas for some Lenten fish dishes, and Justin explained proper cooking techniques and gave us a whole lot of tips on starting out in the kitchen, what kind of equipment to buy, where to put our money. Raquel talked to us about some simple dishes for Lent that included rice and tostadas, and a special bread pudding that's a dessert for Good Friday, traditionally. And help me, what else did we talk about? I think that was... Well, we covered, you know, we covered, uh, you know, where to find resources to get decent recipes and to get some instructional videos on how to start off if you're new. And even if you're a seasoned cook and you've been doing it for years and years, I find that going back to those basic beginner videos are really they're great, and you you can learn so much by. I mean, like the other day, I learned how to cut an onion in a totally different manner that I had never even thought about trying, and now it's like my go-to way to cut an onion. So it's it's just you know the basics hold something for everyone. Yes, that's true. We're always learning. There's always more to know, and always a better way to do it. Well, maybe not always a better way to do it, but you often find that there's a better way to do what you've been doing for years, like you were saying with the onion, because I only recently learned a better way to to cut an onion myself. So, yeah, there's lots to learn. Oh, and especially the the point about know where your food comes from. You know, what's the connection to the land? So, like in the case of the fish, did it come from local waters or is it from, you know, overseas somewhere where you're not really sure how it's been raised? Is it wild caught or is it farm raised? You know, all those things you want to consider. 
And you can find, as Justin mentioned, you can find some good quality fish even at places like Costco. If you're reading labels, you can find, what was it, salmon that you found a good price on at Costco that was wild caught? Yes, so, yes it was. And actually, it was, it was a salmon, but it's the, it's the same concept, it's the same big box wholesale store. You know, it was in the freezer section right. where all the seafood is. So, yeah, you can definitely find stuff out there that's not going to break the, break the bank to actually make the purchase. Right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Justin and Raquel, and for sharing your love of cooking with us. Is there anything else you would like to add before we close the episode, Justin? I would just say this Lent, do some experimenting with the recipes that you typically make. There's nothing wrong with eating beans and rice and tuna fish out of the can, but if you do it for days and days on end, you know, it's not going to be super pleasant. And uh, I know Lent isn't supposed to be a time where you try to, you know, make the French cuisine and everything, but you need to have some go-to meals that you can make, that you can have a, a variety of things that are going to not burn you out. And, and so, you know, do your best to get online, find some recipes, you know, venture out a little bit. Uh, it's amazing some of the meatless dishes that are out there that just taste fabulous. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. And I wanted to say that, right, we don't want to spoil ourselves during Lent, but by the same token, Lent may be the time when we recover that important aspect of community that we get too busy to focus on during the rest of the year. So we can establish community in the kitchen. We can cook together. We can make simple meals, but they're still pleasing to the palate. And so even though it's Lent, and we're not doing fancy cooking. We're still doing wonderful things to build up our faith by focusing on building community in our families and making the sacrifice of our time to cook with each other and to focus on our, our health by preparing good meals with quality ingredients. So that was my thought on, on cooking for Lent. Raquel, did you have something more to add? I forgot to mention that the Gabriel Saba actually has some symbolism. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ, the Blessed Sacrament, and the cinnamon stick symbolizes the wood of the cross, and the raisins symbolize the nails of the cross, which I'm not sure why the raisins would symbolize the nails, but it, that's just what tradition says. And the melted cheese symbolizes the shroud that covered our Blessed Lord's body in the tomb. That's beautiful. Thanks for adding that information. That adds a lot. And it makes you understand better why it's eaten traditionally on Good Friday. Well, thank you again, both of you. I really enjoyed talking with you about Lenten food. It was great. No, if you thank you for having me, Wendy. If you have any questions for Justin or Raquel or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at Catholic Home at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to our guests. All correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be in any way beneficial to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Wendy Haught. May God bless you and the Blessed Mother keep you in her tender care.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.